Well, we want to return today to our study through the book of Ephesians, and I ask you please take a copy of the Word of God and open it to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, as we begin in what would be considered the second section of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, and I will read in our hearing today verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we thank God for his word and ask his blessings upon it. And may his people say, Amen. Jeff Thomas, in a message, made the following comment. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not repent and believe. The gospel is not open your hearts to Jesus. The gospel is not come to the front and repeat the sinner's prayer. The gospel is not be baptized and join the church. There is no statement of good news in those commands. The gospel is a statement of the mighty acts of God. Thomas continues by saying that the epistle to the Ephesians is called the gospel epistle because Paul in this letter is utterly obsessed with everything that God has done. The letter is full of the most jubilant affirmations about God. When we read Ephesians, we learn how God has accomplished the redemption of the church and arranged in His rich complexity so that all the glory for this goes to His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Gospel is, as Thomas points out, very plainly declared in the epistle to the Ephesians. It is declared in the fact of what the Father has eternally done, that He has purposed, that He has predestined, that He has planned to save a people, His elect people. And this is clearly pronounced in the book of Ephesians. He, the Father, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to His will. This is not a hypothetical. This is not a potential. This is a reality. This is what God has done from the foundation of the earth. He chose a people that would be His people, the people of Christ. He predestined us to be conformed unto the image of Christ, be adopted into His family. That's good news. The fact that God has taken notice and acted upon fallen mankind. This is wonderful news. This is what God has done. 
the Son, we read in chapter 1, verse 7, accomplished the redemption that the Father purposed. We read there in Christ, we have, not that we might have, or that it's a possibility that one might have, but rather we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. Now when sin is on your mind and you go before God, your conscience is wounded and you pray, what can be, what is the basis of your prayers? God's great, of course. God is good, of course. But that I have forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. In His righteousness, I stand and not in mine. That's good news. Christ has accomplished redemption. It's not simply that it was planned or purposed in eternity, but Christ comes in history, in time, and He lives, He obeys the law, He sacrifices Himself, He dies on the cross, and He's powerfully resurrected from the grave. He ascends into glory, and now He is seated on the throne. He is in session over creation, over His. That's good news. Thirdly, the Spirit currently and effectually applies this redemption that the Father has purposed in eternity, that the Son has secured in time, now, currently, presently, in the lives of sinners, the Spirit effectually draws them. Faith is granted to them, and they believe in Christ, and they're drawn to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is great news. That is good news. This is the gospel. What God has powerfully done for sinners. And in Ephesians, it is clear that the gospel is centered upon Christ. It's focused upon Christ. There is no such thing as a Christless gospel. It's not centered on me. It's centered on Christ. And we, know, we can note that by several things, but one would be the repetition of the words or the name Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians. Christ is used some 45 times. Jesus Christ some 18 times. Told us 63 times. But we, we also have in there that we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's repeated over and over and over again. Carson and Moo in their commentary note, it is plain to every, it is plain everywhere, that is in Ephesians, who Christ is. And what he does is at the heart of the Christian way. So let's just summarize this, these opening remarks now by saying the gospel is not what I have done or what you must do, but rather it is what God has done, the mighty works of God. However, the gospel is not peopleless. 
It's not worked out in a vacuum. It involves people, you and me. And it has an effect. When one is brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from Christlessness to Christ, there is an effect. It has bearing on that person. Well, Ephesians is often divided, just, and it's a pretty good division, is often divided into two basic divisions. Chapters 1 through 3 is sometimes referred to as the doctrinal section, are the indicatives, the statements about this is what God has done. Now, does that mean there are no commands in there? Of course not. But that seems to be the weight of the first three chapters on the indicative. This is what God has done. But it doesn't stop there. Chapters 4 through 6, then, are on the practical section, what's called the imperatives. This is what God has done, therefore do this. God has done this, you do this. 1 through 3, God has done. Chapters 4 through 6, do this. Brian Chapel writes that what Christians do is based on who we are in Christ. We obey because God has loved us and united us to Himself by His Son. We are not united to God, we are not united to God, nor do we make Him love us because we have obeyed Him. Our obedience is a response to His love, not a purchase of it. We keep His indicative, imperative relationship clear, not by when we happen to mention it or mention each element in a sermon, but by making sure that the message is not done until listeners are motivated to obey God based upon God's gracious provision for them. And that is what I would have us reach today. That is that we're not done until it is pressed upon our conscience what we should do because of who God is and what God has done. So we have the great gospel message, the mighty works of God. And then we come into chapter 4 and it's do this. Do this because of your love for God and what God has done. So chapters 1 through 3, we have the the gospel, the mighty acts of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the focus of Ephesians 4 through 6 is on gospel obedience. One other quote, John Stott writes that Paul turns from exposition, talking about in chapter 4 verse 1, Paul turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done to what we must do, from doctrine to duty, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. And that's where we are in our study through Ephesians. We come to chapter 4, verse 1, and we're shifting gears, and we're moving from, again, of course, we have what God has done in these chapters. I don't mean to say it's not here, but the weight 
of these chapters is because of what God has done. Now you do this. And this is where we're moving to. The primary, as I consider chapter 4, uh, the, the primary imperative that we have, really chapters 4 through 6, but the primary imperative that we have is walk worthy. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So our primary um, imperative in this chapters 4 through 6 is on that. Walk worthy. Now that's going to be developed in different ways for us. And I would think of these other imperatives as... Um, Explanatory. They help explain, help us to see what that primary work worthy, what worthy, excuse me, is. Now it has many other imperatives, commands, and they will help us understand that primary one, walk worthy. Now Paul employs in Ephesians 4 through 5, Paul employs the word walk uh, a number of times, I think some five times, that he uses the word walk. In the Greek, it's peripato. It is composed of two root words. Peri, which is the, the, the root or the, uh, of our word perimeter. And it, it has basically a very similar uh, meaning. It, it, it means uh, around, peri. And the pato is walk. It's to walk around. Now, Paul uses the word walk to denote one's manner of life. And that life is a life that is expressive of the gospel. Now, as a beneficiary of the gospel, how are we to walk worthy? Well, in chapter 4, the first 16 verses, I think the emphasis is on unity. I think there's two big, sub, two big headings here. And then there's some subs under it. But the, the big heading in chapter 4, the first 16 verses, is on unity. And in, then in chapter 4, beginning with 17 and forward, the emphasis is on holiness or godliness or righteousness. Walk in unity and walk in righteousness or holiness. Be holy. Those are the two big headings. Now, if you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 17... As it comes to this walk in holiness and godliness, I'll just go ahead and point out some of the walks that Paul uses. Notice in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't walk like you used to do. You're different. You've been changed by the mighty acts of God. We are recipients of the grace of God. Now therefore, don't walk like I used to. There's a difference. There's a change in my life. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the emphasis he says here is love. But look at chapter um, 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or perhaps we could say the walk here is don't walk like you used to, but now imitate God. Walk in a, in a way of godliness. 
and he expresses the beginning thing, the beginning uh, attribute there is love, like Christ loved, and God loves. And then we go to chapter 5, uh, the second part of verse B, uh, uh, H, excuse me, 8B, and it says, uh, Paul writes, walk as children of light. Don't walk like you used to. And the superstitions and darkness and, and the uh, confounding ways of, of the Gentiles, of paganism, of unbelief. Walk like God. Imitate God. And how hot is God? God is like, well, walk in light. Walk with understanding. Walk with... I must have get ahead of myself. And then chapter 5, verse 15 and 16... It's walk with purpose. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Walk with purpose. With circumspection. So these are some of the ways that Paul will employ the word walk. As you move into this second section of Ephesians. But now I want to go back and I want to consider our passage uh, more closely, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We have the command to walk worthy and the first clause uh, of verse 1 is I therefore. This is the first clause. Paul, I therefore. And the command is walk worthy. Now I think of this as the saving <coughs> Private Ryan text. That's the way I've often viewed this text. The saving Private Ryan passage. The closing scene, if you've seen that movie, if you haven't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you do, but, but the, say, the closing scene of that movie, an old Ryan, who the movie is about saving him, the old Ryan is at Normandy, at the cemetery there, where there are uh, more than uh, 9,000 American servicemen buried. He's there. He walks in, and he walks through the rows of the crosses and the Star of David, and he's searching for a, a particular grave, and it is the grave of Captain John Miller. Isn't that interesting? And he finds the grave, and he's standing there at the grave, and he's recalling when they landed at Normandy and all that transpires in the, in the movie. But as he's standing there, and the, and the, the scene is, is of a young uh, a Private Ryan on a bridge where they had a, a great battle, and Captain Miller is mortally wounded. It moves from the face of Captain, excuse me, of Private Ryan, from a young man, and then all of a sudden he's standing at the grave and he's an old man. So they, they do a real good job there of that moving from youth to age. And he's standing there and he says to the memory of Captain uh, Miller, There is not a day that has gone by that I have not remembered what you all sacrificed for me. I tried to live worthy of your sacrifice. Now on the bridge, as Captain Miller is dying, he says to the young Private Ryan, earn this. And that's what he's recalling. 
And he says, every day I've thought about the sacrifice you men have made, and I've tried to live in such a way. Well, Paul isn't saying earn, earn the love of God or the grace of God, but Paul is looking back at the great works of God in redemption of the amazing grace of God. And he says, I therefore, therefore, based on the amazing, redemptive work of God before the foundation of the world, in the course of history, and currently as the Holy Spirit brings and draws people to Christ, walk worthy. Wow, that's weighty. That's weighty. And he doesn't say earn it, but walk worthy of who you are in Christ. The second clause is a prisoner for the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. This helps us identify, among other words and phrases in the book, this helps us identify Ephesians as one of what is called the prison epistles. And there generally is accepted there are four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And it's generally thought that Paul is in his first imprisonment in Rome and under house arrest when he writes the book, these books. Now, I would just pause here and, and, and just make this, this point. I want to move on, but a lot of times people want to wait till they get to a certain comfort, to a certain place, and they say, well, then I will serve God, or then I will be part of the church, or sometimes people even like for having children, it's wait till I reach this platinum, you know, then I will do this. You know, some of the most productive works are done not when I'm in great ecstasy in the Holy Spirit or my spirit is just lifted to glory. That's that's not usually where a lot of great works come or hymns but they come from plowing the, the valley bottoms. I know Brother Rick is on the um, Pilgrim's Progress and how he's enjoying that and rereading it. And when was it written? Where's Bunyan? It's in prison. Some of the most fertile, useful times in our lives are when we are in the bottom Paul I therefore a prisoner of the Lord he's a prisoner because he preached Christ and he went against and he wouldn't follow certain Jewish traditions and do certain things in the temple and he is actually there for Christ's sake he's preached the gospel to the Gentiles And he is actually a prisoner. So I would remind you that you may not be on a mountain right now, but 
God may have you where he has you, that it will be a very fruitful and useful time. A time of looking to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and um, drawing near to the Lord. Prayer, um, faith. Third clause is urge you. I therefore, prisoner of, uh, for the Lord, urge you. This uh, sounds very, in the Greek, it sounds very much like paraclete. And you remember, you've, I'm sure you've, if you've attended church, you've heard that word. Christ said, I will not leave you alone, but I will send another comforter, another paraclete, who will be by you and teach you and lead you. And that's the, really very close to our, uh, part of our, our word here, uh, a paraclete is one that would come along and help you and urge you, direct you, guide you. And here Paul says, I urge you. I'm asking you earnestly. I am begging you. Is another definition for the word urge. So Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, says to the Ephesian believers, I am begging you to do this. Paul has taught them the gospel. He spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else that I know about right off. He has been faithful in opening the word of God to them. And in the first part of Ephesians, he gives them the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that he could give them. He has taught them well. He has prayed for them. In Ephesians uh, 1, we have a prayer of Paul for for the believers in Ephesus. And in chapter 3, we have another prayer of the Apostle Paul for the believers in Ephesus. Paul has taught them. He has prayed for them. And now he pleads with them. And he is doing, he is making this, this plea in light of what he has taught and prayed. And he calls upon the Ephesians to walk worthy. Fourth clause. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Sometimes, and rightly so, we refer to vocations as a calling. A person made be a teacher and they that's their that's their calling we understand what they mean a person may be a work in medicine and that's their calling and again we understand what they mean a, man, a person may be a farmer whatever the vocation and that's their calling and we appreciate that and that, and that reality we refer to ministers as being called not just by the a church as our sister church is considering issuing a call this morning, but also called by God. It's a, a burden. It's a, it's a, 
It's something you just can't shake away. <clears throat> well, while that's true, I don't understand that Ephesians 4.1, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, I'm not, I don't understand that to be referring to a vocational call. Because he's saying this to all the Ephesians. <coughs> the call that Ephesians 4.1 is expressing is, a, is common to all believers, and I can say it to you today, uh, these many hundreds of years after this is written, for you to call to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Because this is common to all believers. This calling is common. What calling is that? Well, if you want to turn in your confession, you can. I'll, I can, I'll read it for you. I think it's on the notes I gave you. From chapter 10, uh, paragraph 1. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And he's told them about the grace of God, the predestination, the election, the redemption, the, the Spirit's sealing of us. He's given this to us. Now he says, now what worthy of your calling? You have been translated, transported. You have been changed. You have been made alive. In Ephesians 2, in Christ you were dead, but now you're not. That's your calling. Called. It's to be saints of God. To be temples of the Lord. To be His people. His church. His body. And every believer has this call. It's not special to any one believer. It's a general common, this is, call. This God has translated you. He's brought you from one place to another place, and this is what you're called. This is your vocation. So as a husband, am I a husband first or a believer first? If I am a believing husband, that identifies me as a Christian believer. That's who I am. That's how I am to operate. If I'm a father, am I simply a father? Am I a Christian father? If I'm a son, am I simply a son or am I a Christian son? If I'm a wife or a daughter, whatever it may be, or go to your vocation. If you're a machinist, are you just a machinist? No. You're a Christian machinist. That identifies you. This is our identity. And this is common. We're called to be saints and members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his bride, his body. Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, and summarize this, this portion. What is a worthy manner to walk worthy? What is a worthy manner? Well, as people of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's who he's writing to, to the churches in Ephesus, 
there are two primary identifying qualities or attributes. He's already hit on it in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and now he's just going to outright say it. Just, I mean, well, he said it before, but, but now he's moving from the indicative to the imperative. This is what you are. Now do this. Act this way. And the first quality is unity. And the second quality is godliness or holiness. And as I've already pointed out, the first verses of chapter 4 are on unity. And beginning about verse 17 and forward through, I would say, basically to the rest of the book, it's on godliness. Walk in godliness, holiness. Walk worthy. That's a big one. Sub in unity and godliness. That is to walk worthy. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we have the essentials for unity. Humility. That we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility. Behind discord lurks pride. Pride's, I think it's always there. Why did Cain kill his brother, Abel? Well, God was pleased with the sacrifice of Abel, but he was not with Cain. And Cain's face fell. He got angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because God didn't accept his sacrifice, and he's angry because he did accept his brother's sacrifice. He's angry. And in that anger created by pride, because why didn't God accept mine? He rises up in anger, even though God warned him, if you turn, it'll be all right, but be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. It's like a, a lion with all of its muscles tense. It's ready to just jump out and devour you. And if you don't turn away from this, it's going to eat you alive. And he didn't listen. He killed his brother. He was conquered by sin, by his pride. What was causing division in the church of Corinth? Well, I'm of Paul. No, I'm of Cephas. Well, I think Apollos is the best myself. Pride. What was the problem at the Lord's Supper? Because the have and the have-nots were being segregated because of pride. Because some could look down their long, prideful noses at others. And because of that, I don't, you know, we have this feast of love, but hey, brother, you stay over there. I don't like you. Pride. What caused division among the apostles? Matthew 20, verse 20, the wife of Zebedee took it upon herself to stick her nose in and cause an issue. 
She said, let my sons, be James and John, let my sons sit by your side in your kingdom. Well, the other apostles didn't take too kindly to that. What do you mean? Are they better than us? And what did, you, what did she mean? Did she think that there was that kind of separation? In Luke twenty two twenty four, dispute uh, as who they had a dispute as to who was to be regarded as the greatest. That's the apostles. Which one of us is most important? But Jesus is the quintessential embodiment of humility. And we read of Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, that's humble, and lowly in mind, in heart, excuse me, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ is the one that we are to model. He became a man. And becoming a man, there is humility. He took on flesh. That's humility. The lawgiver becomes subject to the law. That's humility. He subjected himself unto the law. He was obedient unto it, even unto death. He dies on the cross. And that's something, you know, his apostles couldn't have grasped at a certain time. For a long time. No, you, will, you can't do this. This is beyond you. But Christ said, no, this is who I am. This is why I've come. Well, in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we must exercise humility. We must recognize that we are blessed and we are recipients of the grace of God. We are recipients of I am what I am and I have what I have simply by the goodness and grace of God alone. If I had a great tenor opera voice and I could sing and lift the voice off of this church, there should be no room for pride because I only have it because God has given it. If I'm the fastest runner, I can outrun anybody around me, leave them in my dust. I, I shouldn't be pri- I should be filled with pride what did I do? Well, I got my genes from my parents, but God has given me, blessed me in that given way. If I have wealth untold, should I be full of pride? No. Why? Because the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord. The earth is His. He's just made alone. There's no room for that. Not in unity. Secondly, we have gentleness with all humility and gentleness. And they're close. I know they're they're very close together, but they're not synonyms. And a lot of times when we talk about humility and gentleness, people get by that person's weak. I may have a Clydesdale horse. I don't. But if I had a Clydesdale horse and that horse listened and obeyed the commands, you wouldn't call that horse weak. Pull your car out of the mud. Probably pull your house or my house down. It's not weak. It's not weak because it is gentle. But that means its strength is under control. 
My strength is to be under control. Whatever strengths or weaknesses I may have. Barclay in his commentary writes, The meek man thinks as little of his personal claims as the humble man of his personal merits. Let me reread that. The meek man thinks as little of his personal claims as the humble man of his personal merits. And Hendrickson writes, The meek individual is slow to insist on his rights. And we live in a day of pride, many days of pride, but we live in a time of exaggerated pride. It's my right. Hendrickson writes, the meek individual is slow to insist on his rights. Paul would write an epistle. He said, now I have the right as an apostle to command and demand of you certain things, but I'm not doing that. Rather, I'm going out and making a living with my own hands to supply my own needs. So I would not be, anybody could say that, you know, I'm selling the gospel. I have no natural rights, but all rights are by God's grace. The gentle person would rather take wrong than inflict it. And so here we have humility and gentleness, and I'll put the next together. We have patience and loving forbearance. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How do you deal with an aggravating person? And just because we're brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean that I can't be aggravating to you. So how do you deal with an aggravating person? Let me ask you this. How has God dealt with you? You suppose you're ever aggravating, if I may say it that way, to the Lord? I suspect so, just like I am. And how does God deal with me? Faithfully, lovingly. And He wouldn't put more on me. He wouldn't break me. Not totally. Bring me to repentance, yes. But he deals with me in love and forbearance. Do you exercise great patience and forbearance for your brothers and sisters? No church can truly grow, be healthy and have peace and unity without loving forbearance. Peter writes, above all things, being fervent in your love among yourselves, for love covers a multitude of sins. I need a lot of forbearance because I've got great multitudes, seriously, of sin. Then Paul says eagerness. There must be this eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now what helps a person to be eager to maintain unity? Turn back to Ephesians 2 for just a moment. And let's look again at the, at the root of this unity. Verses 14 through 16. This unity is not man created. It's not something we've decided one day, well, we're just going to be, we're going to be happy and all be one. That's not the basis of what he's talking about. This is spiritual unity. 
It works its way out in very practical ways. But let's be reminded of what is the source of it. Verses 14 through 16. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby, killing the hostility. What is the basis of the unity of the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, whether it be in glory or on earth? What is the basis of that? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the very blood of Christ that has been shed for His people. And so if I'm not eager to maintain unity, I'm not thinking very highly of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm putting it down. Because Christ secured unity in His death. I thought about going to Psalm 133, but I think I'll pass it by today. I want to summarize this part that we've been considering here on these essentials of unity. The basis of unity is redemption, the redemptive blood and work of Christ. That is the basis. And so to be eager and to promote unity, I might urge you, I would urge you, for whom I have tried to teach and for whom I pray, I now urge you to look to the cross. Look to Christ and look at what Christ has done. That is how I urge you if you want to be eager to promote unity. And my counsel is and let me give you a practical example. In Matthew 18, I'm told how to deal with somebody that offends me. This is in the church. If someone, if I am offended, this aggravating person, whatever, it may be me, but if I am offended, what am I supposed to do? Christ teaches me I am to go to that person and tell them, explain to them why. I've been hurt, offended. And if they won't hear me, if they hear me, I've won a brother. If they won't hear me, I'm to take with me some witnesses. And if they don't hear the witnesses, if they hear the witnesses, good. If they don't hear the witnesses, then I have another step. Take it to the church. And what is the church going to do? Well, the church then probably would most likely find this person is not acting in a Christian way because they are not forgiving trespasses as I have been forgiven. They're not, they're not forgiving wrong as I have been forgiven of my wrongs. And most likely the end result of that would be, and it says this, you cut them off. So this, and this isn't the first time I've ever given this counsel. I've given this counsel over and over through the years. But I'll give it again. That 
to me, my approach to that is this. If the offense, and I am going to be offended because I'm human and I'm around other humans. If the offense is indicative that that brother, that, excuse me, that person is not a brother or sister, and I'm not willing to go to the ultimate nth degree of Matthew 18, what should I do? Love covers a multitude of sins. I am to be humble. I am to be meek. I am to have loving forbearance. And I am to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So if I'm not willing to take that all the way through and say, basically, you're not, you're not a Christian. That's what the church would be saying. You have, you're not acting in any Christian way. We're cutting you out. What am I thinking about the cross at that point? That's why it's important to understand this goes back to Christ on the cross. And if I won't take it there, then bury it. Drop it. Cover it in love. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Applications. And I have to jump on this real fast. Uh, why is Paul placing so much emphasis on unity in this first section? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I wanted to go to a couple of passages. I'll probably just recite them. But I want you to notice verse 7. This is one very practical reason. We could get into theological, which I've maybe done some, but but verse 7, here's a very practical reason why Paul is getting into this. And he's stressing this. This is one of the markers of the church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that verse say? <coughs> that it is the purpose of God that in a body there is diversity. That's what he's saying. And he goes on to say that. He goes on to say, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he's going to go out from that. He's going to particularly pick out the word gifts on prophets and, and apostles and teachers and preachers. But the, the point of, I think, in verse 7 is that everybody in the body of Christ has, has been granted grace. And this grace is talking about various giftedness, personalities, differences, diversity. And this is intentional. I mean, it would be a boring congregation if I was standing here and every one of you looked like me. And you thought like me. And you acted like me. No, you have an identity. I hear your voice. I know who you are. I see your face. I know who you are. You have an identity. And that identity... It also comes out in graces and gifts in your lives. So God deliberately grants grace. There is an intentional diversity. Well, what does diversity lead to? I was going to go to these passages. I'm going to cite them to you. Romans 12, verses 3 through 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 20. 
where Paul's talking about the body, and he says the body's made up of many members, but it's still one body. And if the eye says to the ear, I don't have any need of you, well, that doesn't make sense because that's the gift that God has given. And I will say this, by the way. If you take a member of the body, the hand, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It works, it bends, it picks up. If you have the gifts of Sister Fran, you can play the piano or uh, uh, Sister Rachel, the violin, or some of you that play various instruments, or you may be a, uh, can do intricate things with your hands. They were practicing tying knots at trail life the other night. You know, you can do all sorts of things with your hands. But if I was walking down the road and I just saw a hand laying there, that would be grotesque. I would go, oh my gracious. That belongs to somebody. Body. God grants gifts so they may be exercised in the body. He says there are many members, but there's one body. Now, I'm not going to go try to preach 1 Corinthians, even though I'd like to at this time, or Romans 12. But the point is that we're not all ears, or we're not all eyes, or we're not all hands, or we're not all feet. It takes a complexity and a diversity brought together in a synchronization, a, a beautiful unity for the body to function properly. And Paul starts out right there. Here it is. Now, let me give a word of application to us as a church family. We, we prayed this morning for sovereign grace, and in likewise, likewise, we could say we're being blessed. We have been blessed. We're being blessed. And I don't think it's over. I pray that it will not be over. I pray that God will continue to expand the borders of the tent, that he will continue to bring in uh, all kinds of folks, red, yellow, black, and white, Protestant, Catholic, I don't, you know, bring them in that we may be one. So no, I don't, I, I hope and pray it's not other, over. And, and as we grow, we have grown in abilities and opportunities, and all those abilities and opportunities are not the same. I'll say sometimes that some of you ladies will come to me and you'll mention something about a person, and I'll go, I didn't even think of that. My mind's, I don't, I'm not wired that way. I don't, I don't, I'm glad that you thought about that, that there's, you know, this person or whatever it is. It's like, why didn't I think of that? Well, I can give you a lot of reasons, but primarily that's not who I am. That's not my area of giftedness if I have an area. A growing healthy church has lots of moving parts, members, but it's one body. And a sign of health is when all those parts are working together. And sickness and weakness is when the diversity is, dis, is, not, is ununified. And even one part begins to unappreciate and even attack another part. Our son has, our oldest son has cancer and has had it for some years in stage four. Why? What is cancer? It's when the cells in your body go nuts and they begin to grow too rapidly and they damage, kill, 
various parts of your body. What is the common goal of all the parts and of the one body? I'm talking to the church now. What's the goal? Why does God give this diversity and talk about this unity? When you read right on down in Ephesians chapter 4, and you're going to find out it's for the edification of the body that you may be strong and that you may grow up together in Christ. And there's protection that we won't be blown about by every wind and all. We're growing up together. And of course, above that, even the Solidaire Gloria. Why did God call you? To what calling have you been called? Individually and church. What's our, what's our goal? A primary question I usually discuss with a couple in premarital counseling and often in marital counseling is the primary relationship of the husband and wife. And I tell them that's primary and it trumps every other relationship. If it's premarital that you've ever had, you've got to get those relationships in right order. You may be good buds with somebody, but that's okay. But now your primary relationship is not with your good bud. It's not with mom. It's not with dad. It's with your spouse, your husband or your wife. That's who your primary relationship is. And the natural order is that God blesses. We have children and they grow up and you love them and you nurture them, you raise them. But when they grow up and they go out and they start their own families, they have their family. But my wife and I are still a unit. That's the primary relationship. If you don't get that right, you're going to have nothing but trouble, I think. And I also go on to try to, to, to convince the couple that you're no longer two, but now you're one. And that whatever action or decision you take, it has an impact on the other because you are bound together in union before God. That's what you're doing. So if I decide tomorrow to just sell out and move to the Bahamas, do you think that's going to have an impact on Gail? I would say so. Or if I decide I just don't want to live here anymore, y'all can stay here, but I'm going to go stay somewhere else. Is that going to have an impact on my life? You better believe it. So how must I act and think? About me? Well, yeah, I mean, there comes in there, but there's other factors in a primary factor is my other half, my wife, the two of us that make one. Well, in a church, there are many members, multitude of diversity and gifts that God deliberately gives, and yet how must I act? I don't think individually. I can't. I can't. If I do, I'm going to be very disruptive. But I think in terms of the body, and I need to act with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. May God so bless us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Let's pray together.
Holy Father, we're grateful for your word, this portion of it. And we realize that there is a wicked one that stalks about, seeking whom he may devour. And we know that we are in his targets, individually and collectively, we're in his target. Bullseye is on us. There would be nothing better or more, um, at least in the eyes and minds of our enemy, more destructive to the cause of Christ than to tear apart and tear down uh, the individual believer and the body of Christ. Lord, grant us that we could grow in nurture and knowledge of you and love of one another and appreciation of who you are and what you've done, of the great gospel that has been delivered to us, that we are recipients of your mercy and grace and love. And help us, Lord, to walk worthy of that calling to which we've been called. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't have the number anymore. I lost it. 492. Uh, get your Trinity hymnal out. We're going to change the... So just forget the chorus and all of that. Just go to 492 in the Trinity hymnal. And let's stand together and sing, uh, Take My Life and Let It Be.
Please receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and grant you peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Doxology, please.